We make a lot of assumptions uh, about people. I think we're all guilty of that. We meet somebody for the first time and we come up with an opinion, whether we have anything to back that up or not. Sometimes we think the worst of people. Sometimes we think the best of people. But I would say that most of us cannot help but make some sort of initial judgment. And because it's an initial judgment, and hopefully it stays internal. Now, some of us don't have as much of a filter, and we share that initial judgment out loud. I don't recommend that. Um, That's not a good way to make friends. But we look at things like the way a person dresses, or the way they talk, or who they associate with, and we make some pretty strong assumptions. We do that. And I'll tell you how I know that, because it's funny to me the way these things come up. So most people, before they visit New Life Christian Church, check out our website. And on that website are photos of our staff members. And so I think, based on that, you can make some pretty interesting assumptions. Um, Gavin's wearing a superhero t-shirt. So our children's pastor might secretly be Spider-Man. That's typically what... what we, that's, you can make some assumptions. I, um, you could also make an assumption that outside of our secretary, uh, you have to have a beard to work here. That would be an assumption that you could make. Um, and the other thing, and I, I know this, this has come up so many times. Listen, I want to be honest with you this morning. I have worn a bow tie uh, in my adult life three times. This past Easter, the one before that, and to one funeral. But my photo on the website, I'm wearing a bow tie. <laughs> and so people are like, oh, yeah, I've seen your bow tie. That's what I get when people say, oh, I've seen you on the website. They, they point out the bow tie. Now, I don't know if that says something good about me or bad about me, or if it just says I'm on the cutting edge of fashion. I'm not really sure. What that really, but we make, we make assumptions based on some different things. And the truth is, sometimes some of us even will make assumptions about people and their relationship with God. We assume people aren't Jesus followers, or maybe we assume they are, based on sometimes not nearly enough evidence. We assume someone wouldn't have any interest in God at all, whether we can back that up or not. We, we make those kinds of assumptions. Sometimes we say no for people because we assume that they wouldn't be interested in talking about God. And then there's another level to this. Sometimes we make assumptions about whether or not someone could be useful to God, could be used by God, that God would work through someone for his glory, even if they aren't a Christian. It might be your neighbor. It might be your boss. In fact, it's, it's often, uh, we're worst about this, often when we're talking about people in positions of power. And I don't know if it's jealousy or an assumption that to get to a powerful position you can't be very Christ-like, but we often don't necessarily think about the fact that people in positions of power might be able to be used for God's glory. But I would suggest that God loves using people like that because God can use anyone for his glory and for his purposes. He, he, he will and has used so many people over time that were unexpected for his glory. And in the case of somebody in a position of authority, if, if they already have um, a base of influence, an established influence, why wouldn't God work through them to utilize that same influence? And so as we begin our discussion today, that's kind of the angle we're going to start at. Now, just to catch us up on where we are, last Sunday we began our study of the book of Ezra found in the Old Testament. And where we are in, that t- in, in history there is that God's people, the Israelites, had been conquered along with their homeland. Uh, temple had been destroyed, their homes had been destroyed, and the people were forced to live um, in exile under Babylonian rule. Now, this is something that had been prophesied about years ago by God's prophet, both Isaiah and God's prophet, Jeremiah. 
And within their prophecies, there was also a promise that at the end of 70 years of exile, Babylon would be punished for their sins. And King Cyrus, though not a follower of the God of the Israelites, would be the key to God's people being able to return home to Jerusalem. King Cyrus was, in fact, the king of Persia, who conquered Babylon uh, toward the end of that 70-year period, which put him in the position of rule over both the Babylonians and by, you know, carryover to God's people, the Israelites. And so to refresh our study and pick up today's, I want to share again the first four verses of Ezra chapter 1. And all our scriptures this morning are on the insert in your bulletin, and they'll also be on the screen if you want to follow along. In the first year of King's of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and send it throughout his kingdom. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem and Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem. And may your God be with you. Wherever this Jewish remnant is found, let their neighbors contribute toward their expenses by giving them silver and gold, supplies for the journey, and livestock, as well as a voluntary offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. And so as we talked through the beginning of the book of Ezra last week, we determined that God remembered his promises to the people and made a way for them to come home, that he provided what they needed by the king decreeing, hey, give them what they need to go home and then some. And that God restores what was lost, that the items that had been lost and the, the sacred items for the temple were in fact restored as the temple was being rebuilt to their rightful place. And what we also learned is that God still does those same three things for us, that he keeps his promises, that he provides for our needs. He's given us the Holy Spirit. What more could we need? And that he's willing to restore those of us who are lost, which we all are, until we find him. And he provided a way for us to be restored through Jesus Christ. And so we pick up the story today where a portion of God's people have returned to Jerusalem to begin the physical process of rebuilding the temple. Now, I cannot overstate this. It was destroyed. I'm not exaggerating. When I say that the temple was destroyed in this process, there was really nothing of it left. They knew where it had sat, but they even had to relay the foundation. So it was, it was destroyed. It was decimated. And so they returned to begin the process. Now, this was going to take some time, and so the people settled in around the area where the temple had been. They, they made some structures for themselves to live in. <coughs> Excuse me. And at different times, as you read through the rebuilding of the temple, what you see is that God's people would stop to celebrate God's blessing on them. For instance, as the foundation eventually gets completed, they blow trumpets and clang cymbals and raise a shout of praise to God. They celebrate kind of step by step. And I wonder if anyone involved in the rebuilding of the temple ever thought, this was too easy. Like, something's not right here. It should not have been that easy for us to just come home and start rebuilding. Someone should have had a problem with this. Maybe after 70 years of exile, you don't question when good things happen. I've, I've never spent 70 years in exile. I'm not sure how that would make you feel. Maybe they just felt like, you know what, God brought us back, and God's going to continue to come through, and so we're just going to keep building. And to me, it's a good sign that God's people here were giving him praise kind of step by step as things were going well, because God's people didn't always do that. If you read through the history of Israel, when things were good, that's often when they strayed from God. When things were bad, they'd cry out and say, bring us back, God, we're sorry for what we've done. And the truth is, we do the same thing sometimes. Things go poorly, and we reach out to God and say, God, why would you let this happen? Things go well, and 
We sometimes forget to give him the credit. So to me, it's good to see, at least at this point, that Israel is giving credit to God for the blessing of being able to rebuild the temple. And as the foundation is completed, they worship. And as the altar is completed, they worship. But the truth is, not everyone was okay with this. You know, God's people certainly had made enemies at different times in their history. And the idea that they could be rebuilding, the idea that the temple would return to Jerusalem, that Jerusalem would grow as a city again, um, was concerning to certain groups of people. And even if the king of Persia says they're returning and rebuilding is an acceptable thing, it doesn't mean that everyone else will be on board. We pick up in Ezra chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. The enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were rebuilding a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. So they approached Jerubbabel and the other leaders and said, Let us build with you, for we worship your God just as you do. We have sacrificed to him ever since King Ershadon of Assyria brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the other leaders of Israel replied, You may have no part in this work. We alone will build the temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, just as King Cyrus of Persia commanded us. Then the local residents tried to discourage and frighten the people of Judah to keep them from their work. They bribed agents to work against them and to frustrate their plans. This went on during the entire reign of King Cyrus of Persia and lasted until King Darius of Persia took the throne. Now, if you've ever been a part of a construction project, you know that there are delays and complications no matter what. It doesn't matter how well you've planned it out. Something is going to throw you off. It might be the weather. It might be permits. You never know. You might find something buried there and realize, I can't build here anymore. Things happen. But imagine people working against you in every way they can to slow you down or even stop your progress. And based on what we read in this passage uh, about this lasting until King Darius takes the throne and some other historical sources, we can say with some pretty good confidence that this portion of the building, when they were being consistently messed with by this group of people, lasted 15 to 18 years. And so for 15 to 18 years, after beginning the construction of the temple, it's not even close to finish and has been a consistent source of frustration because of those opposed to construction. Shortly after Darius takes the throne, he, he receives a letter from a governor in the region named Tatanai. Bonus points to you after the service if you remember all of these names here in the book of Ezra. But Tatanai uh, is a governor in the area, and the purpose of this letter seems to be to simply find out if what God's people are doing in Jerusalem is okay with King Darius. Tatanai has obviously approached someone that's in leadership with Israel um, and has found out that their reasoning for rebuilding is because King Cyrus said it okay, says it's okay. And so he reaches out to King Darius, says, Darius, is this okay? Did that really happen? Did Cyrus really say that it was okay? Now, this could have turned out poorly for God's people because here we have another king who does not know the God of the Israelites, who has no loyalties to the Israelite people, and who is not the king who said this was okay. But just like God could use King Cyrus, he could move in the heart of King Darius and move his greater plan forward through him as well. And so Darius has research done. They try to decide, did Cyrus really say this? Is this really okay? And here's his reply. We have it in chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. So King Darius sent this message. Now therefore, Tatsanai, governor of the province west of the Euphrates River, and a name I will not try to pronounce, and your colleagues and other officials west of the Euphrates River, stay away from there. Do not disturb the construction of the temple of God. Let it be rebuilt on its original site, and do not hinder the governor of Judah and the elders of the Jews in their work. Again, does not follow the God of the Israelites. And yet he says, leave them alone. 
Let them do their work, which is great, but it gets better. Verse 8, moreover, I hereby decree that you are to help these elders of the Jews as they rebuild the temple of God. You must pay the full construction costs without delay from my taxes collected in the province west of the Euphrates River so that the work will not be interrupted. Now, some of you would have a bad taste in your mouth just by hearing the word taxes. You don't like being taxed. Here's a king saying, here's taxes we've already collected. Let's give it to somebody else who believes in a God I don't believe in, who's doing something for that God that I don't believe in, and make sure they have what they need to build. That's pretty cool. Verse 9, give the priests in Jerusalem whatever is needed in the way of young bulls, rams, and male lambs for burnt offerings presented to the God of heaven. And without fail, provide them with as much wheat, salt, wine, and olive oil as they need each day. Then they'll be able to offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the welfare of the king and his sons. He's even going to provide what they need to give the sacrifices. He doesn't believe in this God. Then he goes a little bit further. He said, those who violate this decree in any way will have a beam pulled from their house. Then they will be lifted up and impaled on it. And their house will be reduced to a pile of rubble. May the God who has chosen the city of Jerusalem as the place to honor his name destroy any king or nation that violates this command and destroys this temple. I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be obeyed with all diligence. If I had to pare down that last section of what Darius says here to one statement, I would phrase it this way. If you mess with the house of God of Israel, I'll mess with the house of you. Knock down God's house, I'll knock down your house. That's really what he's saying here. That's how strongly, and and again, he doesn't know and doesn't serve the God of Israel, and yet he does this amazing thing to further the work on the temple and even protect those who are working from hindrance. To me, there is no doubt that God is at work here because there's no other good reason for Darius to be on board. He could say it's okay because King Cyrus said it was okay. He could hold to that, but to further... This idea that we're going to provide what they need. We're going to give them all the money they need and all the sacrifices they need, and we're going to protect them, and there's going to be severe punishment for anybody who messes with this. That's next level. That's not just because Cyrus said so. And so I believe God is clearly at work here. If you read all the way through the Bible, it becomes clear that God doesn't only use people who already follow him for his purposes. In fact, it seems that he specializes in using people who who are even far from God. For his purposes. But I think sometimes we forget that. We think, well, this person could be really useful to God if they would just if they would just become a Christian. It's like, no, it's not necessarily the order things have to happen in. So time goes by and the temple is completed and dedicated, and Ezra, a scribe who had studied the, the deeply the laws of God, um, he leads more of God's people home to, to Jerusalem to the temple area and around. Remember, there was only a, a group that was willing to come and build that had come first to prepare things. And so Ezra brings them down. And here's what we read in Ezra chapter 7, verse 6. This Ezra was a scribe who was well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given to the people of Israel. He came up to Jerusalem from Babylon, and the king gave him everything he asked for because the gracious hand of the Lord his God was on him. You see, God was clearly at work in this situation. And so Ezra basically becomes the priest. He becomes the leader. And again, time has passed here, and we have a new king who's taking the throne, Artaxerxes. And again, a new opportunity for someone to not be satisfied with this arrangement, to not be comfortable with God's people being restored to their home. Another king who does not follow the God of the Israelites. 
But I want us to read a, a portion of the letter sent, by, uh, sent to Ezra by the new ruler, King Artaxerxes, in Ezra chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. King Artaxerxes had given a copy of the following letter to Ezra, the priest and scribe who studied and taught the commands and decrees of the Lord to Israel. From Artaxerxes, the king of kings, to Ezra, the priest, the teacher of the law, the law of the God of heaven, greetings. I decree that any of the people of Israel in my kingdom, including the priests and Levites, may volunteer to return to Jerusalem with you. I and my council of seven hereby instruct you to conduct an inquiry into the situation in Judah and Jerusalem based on your God's law, which is in your hand. We also commission you to take with you silver and gold, which we are freely presenting as an offering to the God of Israel who lives in Jerusalem. Furthermore, you are to take any silver and gold that you may obtain from the province of Babylon, as well as the voluntary offerings of the people and the priests that are presented for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. These donations are to be used specifically for the purchase of bulls, rams, male lambs, and the appropriate grain offerings and liquid offerings, all of which will be offered on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. Any silver and gold that is left over may be used in whatever way you and your colleagues feel is the will of your God. Now, isn't that such an interesting little piece there? That not only are they providing them again with what they need, they're saying, if you have leftover, we trust you to do what you want with it. Now, how many kings are actually that trustworthy? That they would say, if you've got left, no, I want every cent back. They says, use it for what you think. And here's the thing about these kings. They did have gods that they believed in, but I think they also believed in covering all their bases. And I think part of the reason they were at least somewhat open to helping the Israelites was this idea, well, if the Israelite God ends up being the real God, and I'm not sure that he is, but if the Israelite God ends up being the real God, I will have some goodwill with that God. And so that's, I believe, part of why they're so willing to give and give and give. But you hear even in the writings, uh, even in their letters, the terminology stays the same. Your God, the God of the Israelites. It's never just God, it's never our God. It's your God, the God of the Israelite people. Let's give over to verse 25. And you, Ezra, are to use the wisdom your God has given you to appoint magistrates and judges who know your God's laws to govern all the people in the province west of the Euphrates River. Teach the law to anyone who does not know. Anyone who refuses to obey the law of your God and the law of the king of kings will be punished immediately, either by death, banishment, confiscation of goods, or imprisonment. This is starting to sound like a theme, isn't it? Leave them alone, let them do their work. Leave them alone, let them live. In fact, give them what they need and then some. And if you go against what I say, you'll be punished. This time, possible punishments include specifically even imprisonment or death. And what Artaxerxes is also doing here is he's actually commissioning Ezra to take charge of the Jewish nation, both the temple and civil affairs. Again, Artaxerxes is not a follower of the Jewish God, but effectively by putting Ezra in charge and by telling Ezra to put magistrates and judges in place that follow the laws of God, Artaxerxes himself is actually restoring the city of Jerusalem and their own government. Now, they still fall under the rule of Artaxerxes, but he's saying, I'm going to allow you to rule yourselves, and I'm going to allow you to do it based on the laws of God. This is so important. This is so important. He's given them the opportunity to be their own people again. And yeah, way up the line, they're subject to King Artaxerxes, to the rule of Persia. 
but they have their own infrastructure, their own leaders. This is so important to the continuation of the nation of Israel. God worked so many amazing things through people who did not know and did not serve the God of Israel. And yet we read stories like this, even when we look at the entire history of God's people, Israel, and even when we look at God's involvement in the world from creation to now, I think we still often find ourselves questioning whether God can work through certain people in certain situations. And, and, and doubt creeps in, and we allow ourselves to become discouraged. And it's often because we assume God is far off instead of waiting expectantly for him to come through. We even from time to time doubt that God can work through us because of our flaws. And that doubt can really beat you down. And yet it's clear that God has a history of using unlikely people, of claiming unlikely people for his purposes. People who don't follow him like these kings. People who are publicly against him. That's happened. And people who are deeply flawed like you and me. God still chooses to use those people. You see, if there's a takeaway I want us to get from today's message, it's really this two-parter. The people in our lives, whether believers or not, are part of a larger story God is writing. Just because you're far from God doesn't mean you're not part of the story. And we, as flawed as we are, are part of that same story. God still chooses to work through us in spite of our flaws. And there is no limit to who God can use. Think about some of the most well-known people from Scripture. We typically remember and focus on the good things that they did. We know them for their great achievements, for their moral victories. But they all had flaws. Noah was found righteous, and he and his family were saved from the flood that destroyed the rest of humanity. But in another part of his life, Noah was also a drunkard. And we might say, well, how could God ever use someone like that? Well, he did. Abraham was old, and sometimes there's a temptation to see less potential in what God can do through an older person. But God did amazing things through Abraham. He became the father of the nation of Israel, the father of God's people. They even made a Sunday school song about him one day. Some of you who grew up in church have sang Father Abraham. Moses led God's people out of bondage in Egypt, but Moses couldn't even speak well. It's likely that Moses had some sort of severe stutter or some similar speech issue that in man's eyes would have disqualified him from a role where he might have to go and speak to Pharaoh, where he might have to lead a large group of people. And yet God worked through him in a mighty way. Rahab was a prostitute. Jonah literally ran away from God. Matthew was a tax collector, which in that time put him at the very bottom of the social ladder. And yet God used them all because I believe that God sees us for who we are, not for our flaws. And who we are is his creation. I want to share what Pastor Kyle Eidelman had to say about this. I couldn't say it better than he did here. He said, what's the past burden you're still carrying? Adultery? Go talk to David the king. Lying? Deception? Abraham and Isaac knew a little bit about that. A sordid past, God chose Rahab, a prostitute. Anger and temper issues, James and John fit into God's plan anyhow. Maybe today it's your turn. Jesus has a message for you, and it has nothing to do with your qualifications. It has to do with coming to the end of yourself, because that's when God can use you in the very best way. By his grace and by nothing you can offer, he chooses 
you. In fact, you may feel held back by one particular issue. And that issue is precisely what God wants to use. It's actually one of his favorite strategies. Your disqualifier becomes God's qualifier. I love that idea that he gets across there. And here's the thing. It's not up to us who God works through. And that's a very good thing because I think we would put limitations where God doesn't. Because a lot of us say, well, God's not going to work through somebody if they don't know him. And already we're putting a restriction that God doesn't put in. And, and we would say, well, they probably need to, to be in a pretty good place, have their sin under control, and that's not necessarily the case. And there we go, putting a restriction that God doesn't put in place. Again, God works through who God works through. In spite of those things that we would consider disqualifiers. I love the story of Gladys Allward. It, it's possible that you've heard of her before. She served as a missionary to China in the 1930s. And we're talking a completely different world of deciding to, to uproot and move to China in the 1930s as a missionary. She was a woman born in London to a working class family, which at that time meant that she was very much at the bottom of the social ladder. Um, she didn't have access to the education she needed, but she knew God's calling on her life. And so she applied to be a missionary, and actually when she applied, she was rejected. Um, because of her background, because of her lack of education, they decided she wasn't ready. But she felt the calling, and so she traveled alone to China. She opened an inn. She, she settled in. She began to get to know the people. And what she did is, is very beautifully recapped by author Ryan Duncan. Here's what he wrote. He said, as the years passed, the people of the city gave all word the name Awede, meaning virtuous one. Her inn expanded to become an orphanage where she cared for over 100 children. And when the Japanese threatened to invade in World War II, it was she who led the children over the mountains to safety. Allward continued to preach the message of Christ all her life until she died in 1970. Just because the, this organization she had applied with to go to China said that she wasn't ready or she wasn't fit to be a missionary in that moment, it didn't change the calling that God put on her life, and it didn't change God's intent or willingness to do amazing things through her. And she took a big risk by going. It probably should not have worked out as well as it did. But I can only imagine the stories of those children that she cared for and even saved the lives of and what their lives ended up looking like and even how God may have continued to work in and through their lives, all because she decided that her disqualifier didn't disqualify her in God's eyes. You see, we have to stop assuming two things. We have to stop assuming that God only works in those who follow him. We have to stop assuming that because it gets us in a position where we dismiss people as, as vessels that God could use. And then we have to um, stop assuming that God only works through those who are qualified. The truth is none of us are really ever qualified for God to work through us, and yet he chooses to work through us instead. And so I want to challenge you kind of in a twofold way today. And it's a prayer challenge. I'm going to challenge you to pray for some specific things. Here's the first one. Pray for those in your life who God could do amazing things through. Who in your life that doesn't know God could God do amazing things through in spite of that fact? Who has power or influence or skills that could be amazing for the kingdom? but doesn't know God, pray for them. 
Pray that they would come to know God, but also pray that they'd be open to God working through them, even if they don't first come to know God. I know that sounds like a strange thing to pray for, but look what God did for Israel through those kings who could have shut the whole thing down, who it seemed likely would have shut the whole thing down, and yet God was able to work through them because there is no limit to who God can work through. And then the second prayer challenge is you pray that God would work through you to use your disqualifier as his qualifier. You know, what, what in your life have you viewed as a disqualifier? What character attribute do you think is like, I just, I'm probably never going to be much good for God because this is just who I am? Or what sin struggle that you can't let go of? Or, or what lack of talent have you used as an excuse to not serve God in a significant way? Pray that God would work through you to use your disqualifier as his qualifier. Pray that he would give you the strength and the boldness that it takes to follow him, even if it does seem like you're not qualified. Pray that God would open your eyes to your potential to change the world for him. Pray that for the boldness it takes to serve God here and now, not once you think you're ready. If God is with you, you are as ready as you need to be to serve him. Each one of us is a part of the larger story God is writing, and I believe that God always has used and always will use unlikely people to accomplish his purposes and further his kingdom here on earth. You and I and our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, everyone can do amazing things for the kingdom of God, not because of our own power, not because of our talents, not even because of our willingness, but because the God of the universe is all-powerful, and yet he chooses to work through us us. So God, help us see ourselves as your instruments. Help us to be willing to do the things you call us to do. And God, thank you. Thank you that it's not dependent on our own power to do what you've called us to do, but it's your power at work in and through us that allows us to be world changers. And God, in those moments where we wrongly assume that someone could never be used by you. In those moments where we wrongly assume that we could be used to do amazing things for your kingdom, for your glory, open our eyes to just how amazing your work through unlikely people can truly be. God, thank you for making us a part of your story. Help us to rely on you and do what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.